Hey everybody, welcome back to Green Milk and Lean's newest Patreon episode. I am so excited and so honored to have uh, Mr. Trungles himself hanging out with me today. It is early morning on August 1st. Uh, Trung, how are you? It's so good to see you again. Hi, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. I am also real sleepy. This is pretty early for me too, <laughs> but I'm excited to talk about the general. I got up early and uh, made my kids chocolate chip pancakes. My oldest is going off to freshman orientation today, which is crazy, even though school doesn't start for a few weeks. It's uh, oh, wow. like the, you know, touring the ninth grade and getting the lay of the land. So uh, we had to make oh, this morning a little special, exciting. but now I get uh, to hang out with Trunk. <laughs> amazing. How is life for you, my friend? Life is not too bad. I'm still trying to get back into the swing of like, what is my routine for making comics? Um, and uh, it's always a little bit of a challenge because I'm a little bit logistically lost wherever it is that I am. Um, and so trying to maintain a schedule these days has been real strange, but I am excited about making work again, which is great. Um, I'm all done. Like I've been traveling so much over the past year that I'm really looking forward to not being anywhere but home for the next however long it takes for me to finish my next graphic novel. <laughs> I uh, I was recently interviewed. So I, um, I've written a memoir about being a gay father. Mm -hmm. And uh, occasionally I'll get interviewed about that memoir. But I was interviewed on a gay father's uh, podcast the other day. It's not coming out for a few weeks. Ooh, okay. And we were talking about comic books and storytelling, and they asked me if I was going to recommend one book for gay parents to read to their kids, what would it be? And I, of course, said The Magic Fish, which is Aww. one of my favorites. Uh, beautiful, beautiful book. I was honored to have Trung on the show, uh, I don't know, six weeks ago or so, when uh, we got to talk all about The Magic Fish, as well as your work with Karma. Uh, tell people a little bit about you if they're not familiar with your story. Oh, sure. Okay. So I am a comic book artist and author living and working in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, I've been here for most of my life, but I share a lot of history with the the X-Men character Karma. I'm, I'm also a I'm, I was born in a refugee camp and my parents were Vietnamese boat people. They were South Vietnamese. Um, and so they there's a lot of echoes of the same character history that I recognize reading through some of these back issues. Um, and uh, I, uh, yeah, I have been making comics for honestly not that long, but I've drawn for most of my life because I love imagery as this sort of cultural bridge between languages when, you know, language is not something that we have in common within my own family when I was growing up. Um, and, uh, yeah, I never really thought I would be making work that is appropriate for superhero comics because most of my work looks a little bit like the work that I studied in college, which is kind of turn of the 20th century children's book and gift book illustration. Um, but I wound up getting some superhero work anyway, which is exciting for me because I love to read them and I never considered that I would be game to make them and yet I've done them. So this is, this is fun. Uh, Trung, I'm a huge fan, and it's, again, uh, I've said this on my show a number of times, but the greatest honor, when you come on my show originally, is an amazing thing, but for people who are willing to come back and do these little character nerdy episodes with me, it's just, it's such an enormous <laughs> honor to have you. I'm going to be in Minneapolis uh, in September for the Uncanny Experience Convention. Ooh. I will hit you up. I would love to grab coffee and, uh, yeah. and meet in person. That'd be amazing. Absolutely. It'd be great. Yeah. Come meet my chickens. I'll, we'll, we'll plan something. I would love that. My husband's going to be there, and he loves chickens, even more than I do. <laughs> Great. He also eats them. I do not. <laughs> I, I do too, actually. <laughs> uh, so we got to talk with Trung about uh, his work with uh, Karma. 
who is a character uh, beloved to many X-Men fans, but perhaps one of the lesser known or lesser used uh, of the main mutant characters. She's one of the original new mutants. Her power is to be able to possess other people, which I think is difficult for a lot of writers to mm -hmm. use creatively, especially in a team book. Uh, she's been through a big journey in the last several years. One of the big things, and we talked about this, uh, Trung, in our initial episode, but let's bring it up here right at the start of our conversation quickly. Uh, Karma is introduced in 1980. We're going to talk a lot about her first appearance today. In fact, that's probably where we'll spend uh, the, the most of our time, if I'm honest. Uh, yeah. And she's introduced with the name Sean Koiman, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's X-I apostrophe A-N space C-O-Y space M-A-N-H. Now, mm -hmm. for our American listeners who have not taken the time to educate themselves, there are many countries who do not use names the same way that Americans do with first and last names. There's a lot of traditions and, and cultural trends. Uh, and for the Vietnamese people, that is certainly the case. Uh, and Sean's name doesn't work in actual real Vietnamese. So Trung got to write a really amazing story where he got to correct that. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about Vietnamese names and uh, and what you did with Karma's name? It's so beautifully sure. done. Yeah, I got to readjust her name a little bit. Um, and I, I was really excited to do it because the name thing, um, because her name is sort of gibberish to actual Vietnamese speakers um, as, it, as she was introduced, um, I had always found myself uh, at a little bit of a distance with Karma, which was really unfortunate because she's Marvel's first lesbian character. So she's kind of a queer standard in Marvel and she's a Vietnamese character as well and so I'm I, I really like she felt like a character that I really should be attached to in some way but I never felt like I could quite um uh warm to her because there was this sort of cultural uh this kind of gap between us and so I um I had the opportunity to um sort of rewrite that part of her history a little bit which was really exciting for me and getting to kind of go back and reread a lot of her character history I really softened on how I viewed the ways that she was written because outside of the name the ways in which she's depicted and the ways that her family dynamics are set up and her character history is set up is actually very sensitively done and I'm thinking about it and I'm like wow this is not a time when it was easy to research any of these things. Yeah. And so to be able to get the gist of the ways that the war was a, was a humanitarian crisis and the ways that it actually impacted people on the ground was really, really wonderful. And so I, I sort of, um, my, my, sh my thinking shifted from, I really need to readjust this character so that I can get into her for real, um, to being like, I need to adjust this character, but I'd like to keep her name as close to the way that it was written when she was introduced by Claremont, because I, I kind of want to honor how close he really got to getting it right in all other aspects. And so, um, I, I renamed her Spring, which is, uh, kind of a unisex name. Um, and with Vietnamese names, we, we usually say that the last Last name first and the middle name and then the the first name and so it, it's kind of this hierarchy of like family middle names are weird in Vietnamese they don't like they indicate slightly different things um than I think we're used to in the in the states and so I've really been confused about it but that um so her name is now pronounced um in Vietnamese it would be Mun Gao Suong 
Um, and so changing her name um, in that way, because her, her last name was largely kind of correct, and Vietnamese is a tonal language, and so there are a lot of diacritical marks that I needed to add. Um, so uh, yeah, so her her name um, uh, has has sort of shifted, and so she's it, so her first name would be pronounced uh, Swung now. So instead of Sean, it's Swan, which is a yeah. I'm going to butcher the pronunciations <laughs> this whole episode, which yeah. is uh, which is such a beautiful rendition and the way you described it in your story. I can go back and listen to our original interview, listeners, but it's it's, it's a really beautiful thing. Karma is a character uh, who has kind of been given different purposes over the years. We're going to talk about her family a lot today. She has a twin brother and two younger siblings and two parents who are deceased, as well as an evil uncle that we'll be focusing primarily on. And later they add a half-sister to all of that. If you guys know the character Susan Hatchie, or uh, her name is Dao in the comics, uh, who is not a character that we will really spend time on today because she's not connected to the general very much. Uh, but uh, Karma has a complex relationship with her family, with what it means to be, you know, kind of good versus evil. These different parts of our soul is really emphasized not only in her code name, but in her initial story with kind of her being the good side, her brother being the bad side and her kind of carrying the essence of her brother within her for a lot of her continuity until recent years on Krakoa. Uh, so there's always been kind of a balance between the light and the dark and what she's willing to do to protect her family uh, and the darkness she will step into in order to try to do her best. Then we get the Shadow King part of her later, which really emphasizes oh, yeah. that part of her story. And that's problematic. These are areas we won't go at all today, but we will see that character balanced a little bit. Uh, what do you think of her codename Karma for a description of her? I mean, her her code name is more about her powers. I think. Well, no, they're not even really about her powers. Her code name is about her relationship with her brother, as far as I understand it, because they have different approaches to the same power, and she is less willing to harm people. And her brother, um, at the beginning, was very, very. Um, uh, he didn't have a lot of scruples about harming people with his powers um, and her kind of absorbing him like physically into her psyche um, and then carrying his like kind of evil part like that balances it's more about it it's kind of a description of her relationship to her powers in relationship to her brother that she psychically ate i guess um than anything <laughs> to do because karma is not really a concept that um that a lot of vietnamese people will will bandy about um so and we'll we'll talk about uh probably a little bit more about that when we get into their um relationship to faith too because notably karma is vietnamese catholic which is its own specific thing um and i'm not sure that her uncle the general um uh really shares any of that also what should we be calling him over the course of this episode think, i've settled think... on general nguyen but i i figured we'll we'll have to figure out how to pronounce his name as well because his name is also not quite right but it's kind of close uh, so uh, let's go there next. The word karma itself in American vernacular has come to mean just kind of fate or destiny, I think. But mm -hmm. karma in Buddhism or Hinduism is a very specific, very cultural, very religious thing that has a lot of nuance. You could read whole college textbooks on the concept of karma. But oversimplifying it, it's the idea of the sum of a person's actions in both this life and in previous states of existence. They really layer this on the character sometimes. It's really emphasized in this first appearance that we'll talk about. Uh, but liter literally, she gets uh, like yin yang symbols placed on her costumes in the future, and they really try to dive in, but they don't seem to have a real clear understanding. Yeah, I, I remember 
confusing too because it's not that is not a stand-in for for karma that's a stand-in for a, a taoist com concept which is different <laughs> that's a co completely different like taoism isn't really even a religion um so that's it's interesting that that's that gets brought in because vietnamese buddhism does not really like I don't know, like culturally, there's some bleed over, of course, because we're so close to China and we were occupied by them for a long time. But the yin yang symbol being associated with the Buddhist concepts is really strange on a Vietnamese Catholic character. So she's getting a lot of different things being put on her, which is which don't always make sense. But also, like as a Vietnamese character, I think is not entirely inappropriate because we are kind of an amalgam culture. Now, uh, the the irony of that, you say Taoist, uh, her half-sister Susan, is her real name is Dao, <laughs> which makes it even more complicated. You know what? I fully forgot that Susan Hachi existed. Like, that was, that's a name that I, I think I encountered at some point when I did, like, was doing the homework to write Karma, and I was like, I don't know if this character is important, and somebody waved me off. I was like, you don't need to worry about her. So I'm just, I've, I've completely wiped her from my memory. <laughs> yeah, no, Susan Hachi, uh, we won't spend time there. In fact, we could do another Patreon episode on Susan. Susan Hatchie another time months later but Susan Hatchie is a character there's a really great karma focused story uh several years back in X-Men Legacy I don't have the right title for sure in my brain uh but Susan Hatchie is is a, a plot device used for karma to really propel her into the spotlight and the story ends with karma inheriting Susan's like billion dollar company uh, uh which puts wow. karma in a position of power for a time that's forgotten for a while but in karma's most recent appearance at the time that we record this which was in new mutants lethal legion number no. five by uh, charlie jan anders and enid balam uh mm -hmm. karma references uh the the billionaire part of her she has to wear that guise for a, a, a period of time to help her teammates complete a mission uh so it is it is a piece of her character but it's a more modern representation we're also seeing some cool stuff with tron happen in the comics uh right now as well uh, okay, we're going to introduce her family, but let's address the name very quickly. We're going to be focusing primarily on General Nguyen Khoi Man. Uh, he he has the name Nguyen, and I don't I do not know how to pronounce N G O C. Nok is how I want to say it. Yeah, his well, it would be it would be Nok probably, which is not a series of like it's a bunch of consonants that don't exist for most Western languages, and so. You don't need, like, I would not worry about it too much. Um, but yeah, it would be um, the closest, I think, uh, approximation to the pronunciation of his name would be Wing of Goy. And I'm not really sure that Goy is even like a name, <laughs> but it, it, they are sounds that Vietnamese speakers can make. So in tra traditional Vietnamese language, that would put his first name as Koi and his last name as Nguyen, which uh, already, here's my Americanization. In all my notes, I wrote just Koi all the way well, through. Well, that's something that I'm confused <laughs> about because Karma's name is, like her last name, like her family name is Man, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's Man Kaswung. And so I don't know if, because Wing is like, depending on the way that it's accented can be a family name and it can be a given name um so i'm not sure which is his actual given name because his last name is the name that i adjusted the most per like as a part of karma's name so i'm not actually sure which one is his family name well Nguyen is part of your name it is yeah yeah, Nguyen is my my family name um and it, it's a slightly different name than Nguyen which is like a which can be a given name. Sure, sure. 
Uh, I want to talk about some of the nuances of this character, but let's introduce him really quickly. We first meet all of these characters in Marvel Team-Up number 100 in 1980 by Chris Claremont and Frank Miller, who are two huge names in comic books, obviously. Mm -hmm. This is a time of, uh, in the early 80s, I feel like cultural appropriation was just something that the American culture was just beginning to understand, which is ridiculous because it has been around for hundreds of years, obviously. Uh, mm -hmm. We take mythology from different cultures, religions, uh, you know, Native American traditions, and we turn them into supervillains and like tell all these stories <laughs> about them. Uh, but this one is handled with a lot more sensitivity than a lot of the stuff that we see in comics uh, so frequently. On the cover, we get a silhouette of Karma with her crisp haircut in the middle of a bright red energy flash. Spider-Man's fighting the Fantastic Four. And the text blurb says, the reason is Karma. And on page one in giant letters, it says, and introducing Karma, she possesses people. Uh, Karma possesses Spider-Man inside. He's struggling to she's struggling to control his mind and to understand his powers. And then we shift over to a large skyscraper, and the text says, "This is Freedom Tower in the heart of New York's financial district. A half century ago, the building was home to some of the most prestigious brokerage houses and law firms in the country, if not the world. Now, after its conversion to a luxury apartment co-op, it houses the rich and the super rich. Among them, Nguyen." Gok Khoi, I'm not going to say it right, a former general in the South Vietnamese army. He calls himself a simple businessman these days, one fortunate enough to be a self-made multi-millionaire. Tonight, he's hosting one of the swankiest charity parties of the season with a guest list that would make Studio 54's pale by comparison. And this we see is the general... excellent detail, I think, because this is where I was like, oh, I think this like this character is actually quite well, well researched because what that immediately suggested to me. So like after the war, the communist government confiscated and then repatriated all private property and businesses from South Vietnamese people. And he is a South Vietnamese character. And so what this part of the story suggests to me is that this man is either super well connected or he's doing hella crimes or both. And it turns out it is both. So I'm like, wow, <laughs> this is incredible, actually. This tells me a lot about the character immediately. And it's historically like kind of in the correct place. So I mean, we're gonna get the we're gonna get the vibe very quickly. This man does not have a lot of moral scruples. He no. will do whatever it takes to get himself into a position of power and personal gain. He is very well connected. And we're gonna get the backstory very quickly that during the war, he was using his status and his connections to profit off of the suffering of other people, manipulating even his own family. And now that the war has ended, he has brought himself to America to reestablish himself as a career criminal, which he will soon do again by moving to Madripoor and then back to New York. Mm -hmm. uh, we're gonna see this character kind of bounce around a little bit. It's probably a good idea to give a touch of context, we don't have to spend a lot of time on it because this is a fictional story, obviously, about the Vietnam War itself. It's really interesting looking at the cultural interpretation. So this was originally written in 1980, which was just a few years after this very long war from the American side had ended. And the the repercussions of this war in, in Vietnam in particular are still being felt, I know. Uh, but because of Marvel's sliding time scale, a lot of characters that have their origins in the Vietnam War, including the Punisher, would now be aged out of a point where it would no longer make sense. Right. And so Marvel, <laughs> Marvel has established in, uh, in recent continuity that there's like this long fictional war based in Asia that has taken place in their universe. Mm -hmm. And that's the war that's always talked about when they go to Vietnam. So we already have kind of a separation of the real world events that Karma is meant to be connected to. 
and we now put it as part of this fictional country uh, in in Marvel where the war really took place, and we can kind of move the sliding time scale more easily that way. Yeah, uh, do you want to? It's actually not a terrible thing for them to do. Like I thought that was actually quite smart because, yeah. like the the history of Vietnam is so weird and so. Um, messy and convoluted it's really hard to actually get like a strong grasp on exactly where the country was at any given point in time like it was occupied by China for like hundreds of years and then it was occupied by France for a long time and then France was like oh Vietnam is not enough and so at the end of the 1800s like they expanded from just like the area that was Vietnam into Cambodia and Laos as well and so it became Andochine for a long time and so a lot of those like countries kind of being melded together into one um, colonially occupied region is something that like we, we kind of take for granted and Vietnamese culture as its own identity is a relatively like it's complicated like it is very old but at the same time the ways that we understand it on the world stage is quite new so the fact that they sort of have like uh glommed that specific conflict into something a little bit broader is actually not a historical either it's 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 clever actually I think the American knowledge or teaching system, I think very few Americans could tell you the difference between the Korean or the Vietnam conflicts, as an example. And few, many would struggle to show you where Korea versus Vietnam is on a map, <laughs> which is really awful yeah. as far as local education goes. Uh, but there's a lot of characters tied to this. Iron Man, the very first appearance of Iron Man is him in this like building weapons in a war conflict, and then he gets oh, trapped in the cave. That. And you know, a lot, a lot of this is tied there. So when they when they simplify this history in this way, it's really uh, it's really crucial. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Let's jump back into the issue for just a moment. And then I want to talk about uh, what it means to be a boat person, if I'm using that vernacular correctly. Oh, yeah, but absolutely. When we jump into the party, we see the general welcoming the Fantastic Four to his home. And I want to read just a touch of dialogue here. Would you read uh, the general's dialogue where he says, welcome, Dr. and Mrs. Richards? Sure, yes. Okay, so the general says, welcome, Dr. and Mrs. Richards. I've heard so much of the renowned Fantastic Four. It is an honor and a pleasure to meet you at last. And Reed says, thank you, general. It was generous of you to purchase so many of Alicia Master's sculptures. It was for charity. Consider it my way of thanking America for being so good to me. Allow me to present my nephew Tran, and this is his brother and sister. These two children recently escaped from Vietnam. And Sue says, oh, you poor darlings. It must have been a terrible ordeal. My name's Sue. Do you know I have a son about your age? Regrettably, Mrs. Richards, they speak no English, and it is also long past their bedtime. And he snaps his fingers. Lawson, Deruge, see to the children. And nearby we hear Alicia Masters commenting on how she doesn't trust Koi, and the thing is noticing that all the guards are carrying guns. And then Karma breaks in, and Spider-Man is there, and she's possessing him. Uh, and uh, he knocks out the guard. She's trying to save her younger siblings, but Spider-Man ends up fighting the Fantastic Four. Tran offers to deal with the situation, but Koi whispers... Uh, not yet, Tran. You are too eager. Your unique talents must be conserved for equally unique situations. And after the Fantastic Four fail against Spider-Man, uh, the general tells Tron to go ahead. Tron forces Karma out of Spider-Man's mind, and the general, reluctant to call the police, uh, turns over the hero to the Fantastic Four. Now, soon the heroes meet Karma at a church with her ally, Michael Bowen, who is a Vietnam veteran who is now a priest, and Karma tells her story. Uh, do you want to read her origin according to Karma here? 
Sure. Yeah. And I'll, I'm going to keep the pronunciation like the the way that it was written at the time. So I'll be calling her Shan for um, whenever she shows up here. Um, so she says, I am Shan Khoi Man. I am Vietnamese. To be Vietnamese is to have lived your entire life with war. It is to suffer, grieve, hunger, fear, to walk hand in hand with death. I do not complain by saying this merely state reality. My father was a colonel in the South Vietnamese ar army because of his ability, but mostly as punishment when he, when he was honest, he was given the most dangerous assignments where he went mother and we four children followed. Father did his best to keep us safe, but that was not always possible. Perhaps it was the horrible weapons used in the war which made Tron and me different, perhaps not. I neither know nor care all that matters is that we are different, as we learned the day the Viet Cong attacked our village. I saw a soldier about to kill Tran. I stopped him. I reached into his mind, became one with him, took control of him. Tran soon learned that he had the same power, but where I had acted only to stop the Viet Cong, Tran made the man kill himself and laughed to see him do it. I was frightened by his ability. Tran was not. He glorified in it. I told no one what we had done. Sometime later, I saw Tran demonstrate his ability to Uncle Nguyen. Father did not like Uncle and spoke of him with contempt. I shared that feeling without knowing why, for Uncle had always been so kind to me. And, then... and we and we see a flashback where the general says, fascinating, Tron. And you say Sean has similar talents. And Tron says, identical, Uncle, but she fears to use them. And the general says, pity. I'm pleased that you confided in me, nephew. I will not forget it or you. And Karma continues... Uh, Uncle was as good as his word. When South Vietnam fell, he arranged for our evacuation. But in the confusion, only Tran was rescued. The rest of us were left to the tender mercies of the new communist regime. The next years were hard, using my powers, necessity, quickly overcoming both revulsion and moral scruples, I managed to keep the family together and save my parents from poison or summary execution. We suffered, but we survived and eventually escaped. The sea was rough, the boat small, overcrowded, barely seaworthy. I was sick, hungry, too weak to use my powers against the Thai pirates when they attacked. As if in a dream, I saw my father and all the men aboard slain. The fate of the women was worse than death. For some, this new agony was too much to bear. Mother died the day we were rescued. I tried to weep, but I had no tears. Tried to grieve for her, for Papa, for myself but it was as if I too had died. From there, we went to America to be reunited with Uncle Nguyen and Tran. Since fleeing Vietnam, Uncle had prospered. Tran had changed. He was cold, calculating, lacking any trace of humanity or compassion. Uncle suggested that I use my power in his service as Tran did. He said it could make me wealthy beyond my wildest dreams. I refused. Uncle was not pleased. We argued. The children and I left. We made our way to Father Bowen's church. The Navy had given me his name, saying that he had established a self-help relief agency for boat people. I had known him most of my life and I trusted him as I no longer trusted my blood relations. With the father's aid, we rented an apartment and I secured employment. Long and Nga were preparing to enter school. They had even begun to smile. For the first time in years, I allowed myself the luxury of hope. Then it was uncle, he had the children. If I wanted to see them again, all I had to do was go to work for him. I had until midnight to decide. I did not know it was possible to feel such hate. 
when I saw Spider-Man's photograph in the newspaper I'd been reading um, for its want ads, I determined to fight fire with fire. I would use a criminal to defeat a criminal. I found you, Spider-Man, and possessed you, and through you attempted to rescue my family. You know what happened next. Okay, so let's pause here for just a minute to talk about this very complex horrible origin and thank you for reading that you didn't know you'd have to take acting lessons to come oh right yeah i was like oh okay well well, here we go it took me a second to get into it but i was there (laughs) Uh, so very simply put this is this family of four was raised in the middle of the very crazy vietnam conflict her father is a soldier in the vietnam army she believes him to be a very heroic soldier who was put in a lot of bad situations her uncle is the war criminal uh Mm -hmm. karma's powers activate when her uh, when a soldier attacks uh but she is humane where her brother makes the soldier kill himself uh tron is valuable to the general who brings him to america leaving the other three children and their parents to have to try to escape as refugees or as boat people pirates attack the ship her father is killed her mother is raped on the day they reach america uh her mother dies And now Sean is trying to raise these two kids in an apartment with the help of some local aid, but her uncle has gotten involved and has brought the children into his uh, organization, thinking that they might be valuable, that they might have powers themselves. This is a heartbreaking origin and easily maybe the most tragic origin out of all of the X-Men characters, which is really saying something because there is a lot of trauma associated with our characters. But this one comes to mind first when I think about just horrible, horrible traumas. Uh, Let me hear your thoughts on this origin story. I mean, I think a lot of the details are right because my parents experienced something very, very similar. Um, My dad was born in the middle of the 60s and my mom was born in the 70s. And so they're pretty young as far as uh, parents go. I think my mom is technically a Gen Xer. And so they were children in the aftermath of the Vietnam War. So they didn't actually live through the war. But for context, I was born in 1978. I am also a Gen Xer. So go ahead. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, my, my dad um, is a little bit older than my mother um, by maybe about six or seven years. And so, and his family was before the Vietnam War pretty well established, like they had, a, they had businesses and, um, and so they, they had like a lot of, they had a lot of siblings because they could take care of all of them. Um, and then when the war happened, um, the, uh, my grandfather fought on the side of the South. And so after the war, there. Um, their home and their businesses were were repatriated. Um, and what that meant was they literally kicked them out of their homes and they sold off all of their, their possessions and their businesses. And so the, the government owned um, their home and they were sent off to what is called charitably a new economy zone. Um, and these are, they're kind of like death camps a little bit in the jungle because they rounded up all um, uh, South Vietnamese people who opposed the communists and they just rounded them up and kind of shipped them off into the jungle. Like my, the way that my dad tells the story, and there's a lot of like just general trigger warning for like all war stuff. Um, he was, I think, 10 or 11 when it happened. And he remembers um, the day that they uh, they moved his family from his home and his mother really fought with the folks who were trying to kick them out of their home because she had been living there for a long time and she had established so many ties in the community. Um, but they uh, they fought back. And one of the details that he always remembers is the fact that the foot soldiers were all teenagers. They were really young boys. 
Um, and so in any conflict, if you appeal to disaffected masculinity, you can make a little foot soldier army do a lot of violence on your behalf. And so he remembers them beating her senseless and then throwing her in the back of a truck and then rounding up the rest of the children. And they got shipped off into the new economy zones, which were essentially just random places in the jungle away from the cities. They weren't really offered any, like there were no buildings. They were expected to build entirely new systems of living in the jungle and subsist there with no experience outside of like living like in the climate like they they had no like there were no mosquito nets um before my dad was a like before he finished puberty he like was able to recall the memory of like uh, like he knew what it felt like for someone to die in his arms from malaria and tons of people died and so his his experience with the war is this very specific like transitional period where it was a humanitarian crisis in a way that I don't think has ever really been written about extensively or or accessed broadly. Like I know a lot of people have done work into looking into this, but there aren't a lot of great American sources into this that I found. And so a lot of these stories kind of still exist in the quite young memories of a lot of these folks who lived through this. Um, and my mother's childhood was a little bit less difficult um, only because she was way too young to remember this transitional period, but she grew up very, very poor in the aftermath because her family was also um, uh, fighting for the South. And so she uh, kind of got to see the after effects of it, whereas my dad got to see the transition of it. And so they they have two very different um, experiences of trauma in relation to the aftermath of the war to the extent that they both decided that they needed to escape the country and move somewhere else. And so they they also became Vietnamese boat refugees. They had a story that was quite similar to Karma's family where they cast off on a small, barely seaworthy boat. And a lot of people died um, on this voyage because they didn't really have a direction. Um, they didn't have a lot of supplies. There are oftentimes hundreds of people on these tiny fishing boats. And so they, um, in my parents' case, were really fortunately rescued by Filipino fishermen. And so they were able to get to a refugee camp and I was born there. Um, but a lot of people didn't survive. A lot of people did get attacked by pirates. Um, Vietnam doesn't have the, like Vietnam has a messy history with its neighbors as well. Um, and so I don't know that the, like your Cambodian, your Thai pirates would have been looked too kindly upon Vietnamese refugees. And the nature of the conflict was such that it did extend kind of beyond the borders of, of Vietnam into these other places as well, because there were a lot of other things um, happening specifically in, in, in Cambodia. And I think a little bit in Thailand at the time as well. But yeah, no, that's sort of like the, the kind of overview. And I was really upon rereading a lot of these things and specifically thinking about the relationship that General Nguyen has to the conflict, the story actually gets quite a lot right. And the extent to which it depicts these specific traumas barely scratches the surface of the ways in which this really was like a really deeply um, scarring kind of humanitarian crisis that really destroyed a lot of people's lives and upended so many things to the extent that most people in Vietnam don't really talk about it these days, like as a culture, more broadly, like people have, you know, like the cultural memory is kind of escaping and the people who were on the quote unquote wrong side of the conflict have become a part of a diaspora. And so they don't get to tell that story in a space where they come from culturally. And so the folks who remain don't really, don't really talk about the war. 
And so on all sides, like all of these stories are, are kind of splintered and very decentralized and atomized to the extent that it's really difficult to get a grasp of the, the extent of the effects of it on diasporic Vietnamese populations. I am so impressed with your command of story, your ability to tell your origin story uh, in such a bold way. Um, I mean, I know it's just part of your story. And I do this when I talk about my life, too, which is very different. I don't even know how to comprehend or compute. Just a few weeks ago in the headlines, the news was obsessed with like that little submarine of billionaires that exploded. Yeah. But at the same time, there was like a boat full of hundreds of refugees that capsized and they all died and it wasn't even touched on in the news. These are stories that people are shaped in these types of trauma. Now I, I, I'm a therapist in my day life, so I'm going to keep my, I'm going to keep my comic book hat on. <laughs> get <laughs> sure. lost in the trauma. No, that's fine. My partner is also a therapist. And so all of the, like the ways <laughs> we discuss trauma are things that I'm very familiar with. So if we want to go there, we can go there. <laughs> but I do want to, I do want to note four things about karma specifically, which I think we can really relate to. Number one in this story, it's really interesting to call one character good and one character evil. From an American moralistic perspective, if we look at the day that Karma's powers activated, the soldiers are attacking, and she uses her powers to get the soldier away but keeps him alive, where Tron uses his powers to kill the soldier, which is frankly a very humane thing to do when you've got a man attacking your family and attacking your country. There's this idea of what it means to survive and you can look at the general as an example of someone who is the ultimate survivor, but he's willing to do it by exploiting the needy, by exploiting the people who are most disenfranchised, who are struggling the most. And there's a line that gets drawn somewhere along the way between surviving and profiting. There's there's a difference between a person who does something to protect their family and like a war profiteer, right? So this character quickly falls into the immoral side of things. Uh, Tron also goes away with his uncle. And it's it's karma that stays behind and sees what her parents go through. She's on the boat with them. She's on the boat when her father's killed. She's on the boat the day it arrives and her mother dies. And her connection to her siblings as their sole protector, her connection to her family and what that means for her is a huge piece of her, uh, her connection to uh, the X-Men characters who is our family she never quite fit in with. She was never part of the family in the same way the other new mutants were because she had this different background than them uh, i'm yeah. fascinated by this character for a number of reasons uh, do you have any thoughts on, on any of that i sure do and i think that karma's specific experience is so and i think this is and i don't like i don't know how much of this is me as a like a vietnamese american reader bringing my own thing into it but claremont wrote her in such a way that left enough room for me as the reader to go in there with my imagination in such a an elegant way that her experience is actually very similar to my experience as like a queer like refugee like in the US because her experience with her kind of like found family with the new mutants she's you know kind of trying to make a connection there but because of the scope of trauma that she's been through she comes off as quite a bit older than the others and i think she is a little bit older as well and so her level level of maturity and her level of responsibility to her siblings and her relationship to them versus that kind of found family metaphor that's usually so cogent for queer 
career people is not something that can hold her to that team in quite the same way that it does for the rest of them. And so the X-Men teams being sort of a queer allegory and her experience as a Vietnamese refugee is so similar to mine because I always did feel quite a bit of distance between myself and the ways that I envision my responsibility and the scope of the kinds of trauma that I was familiar with kind of growing up kind of hearing my parents' stories, like that was something that always made me feel like, oh, like I don't have a strong sense for the scope and scale of other people's problems because there's such a, like I have such a different level of experience with that. And so Karma's story is so, like it, it really resonates because she she feels like a stronger sense of familial responsibility to care for her siblings because family separation is such an incredibly deep trauma that the ways in which we in the West kind of uh, navigate coming out and navigate homophobic family is so different. Like there's this sense that like you you really ought to, and I support that you should be able to, you know, leave your abusive family members behind, but family separation works in such a way with immigrant experiences and particularly with war refugee experiences that you're very disinclined from separating yourself from your family. And so her inclination to leave the team to take care of her siblings or to leave the team in order to work for her uncle to take care of her siblings is something that she would do that would be appropriate for the character because that is something that a lot of you know Vietnamese refugees wound up doing as well. We we don't seek found family because the profound trauma of being separated from everything that you know, the language that you've spoken, the culture that you have, and the people who represent those spaces is something like so deep and so incredibly painful that I don't think that you know we we really can um, gauge that. Uh, super um, efficiently in a comic book, but it, Claremont does a really excellent job of kind of signaling this character's arc in this way. And um, like the like I'm thinking about the ways that my family kind of navigated their separation from their family as well, because my parents, um, my mother traveled um, with her sister, actually. So they, my parents tried to escape twice. They got caught the first time, and so they were thrown in jail for a year. Um, and Vietnamese jails at the time was not fun. Um, and they tried again because it was worth it to them because they didn't really see a future there. And so she actually, like my mother, cast off with my dad and um, her little sister, um, who was just a teenager at the time. And when they got to the refugee camp, they won the green card lottery. And my parents were allowed to take me, but they weren't allowed to take my mother's sister. And so that separation, that kind of re-traumatizing that happens because they had already said goodbye to their families in Vietnam. And then they had to say goodbye again when they thought that they'd gotten away. Like that level of, of trauma is something that I, I don't think that I personally would ever be able to quite grasp. And then on top of that, immigration laws were such that my family couldn't bring over anybody from Vietnam for a very long time. And so we had to become citizens first. And so it was about like, it took, I think six or seven years before we were able to actually like take the citizenship test and become US citizens. And so we are US citizens now, but they weren't able to sponsor their families to come over for another six or seven years. And so it took about seven years before they were like, we're American citizens now, we have protection. And so we can go back and visit our family. And then it took them even longer than that to be able to actually reunite with their family in a meaningful way. Um, so yeah, karma's 
entire deal makes so much sense to me and her decisions and her relationship to both the new mutants and to her siblings and to her uncle all of those things fall in line very closely to what a lot of of uh vietnamese people kind of go through in the diaspora and then her kind of queer journey as well is something that um i think was very deftly yeah it was very very long digression but yeah no 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 no. i love this i've spent so much I've spent so much of my show analyzing the original X-Men because that's where we started my show. I uh, I keep referencing how much I love the New Mutants characters. I'll, I'll, I'll only stay on this for just very briefly, but if we take the original five New Mutants, we've got these kids who are basically all orphans in different capacities uh, mm-hmm. who are brought together in this like billionaire mansion in rural New York. And like the thing they have in common is that they have powers, right? Uh, but Karma, we just heard her story. Wolvesbane grew up as an orphan, basically as far as she knew, in this isolated church with a man who screamed about how evil she was all the time. Cannonball's dad died, and at 15, he's going off to work in the mine so he can support his nine siblings at home in like in poverty, Kentucky, you know. Uh, Sunspot grew up in a very rich home, but as a black-skinned kid in Brazil with parents who were very, very harsh. His mom's gone, his dad's rough on him, and then his girlfriend dies in their very first encounter. And then we've got Mirage, who when her powers manifested on the reservation, uh, her parents disappeared with the whole demon bear story, which is a thing for another time. But when you stack all these characters up next to each other, and I don't like doing trauma stacking, we don't have to put one person's trauma next to another's, but Karma's life experience is such that she has a sense of responsibility and a sense of uh, just old soul about her in what she has been through in a way that the other characters just could never understand. So her coming out later is a really big deal. And so much of her story is like looking for her missing siblings, right? There's like a, there's like a 15 year patch in the comic books where she's looking for her two younger siblings and they keep getting mutated into like, superpowered versions of like adults and then like regressed into children we still don't know if they are mutants or not by the way these yeah, kids are just off at some school somewhere have that like vague like are they superpowered are they not depends <laughs> on what story needs <laughs> uh oh this has been fantastic already i'm feeling just like my heart's pounding this is good uh but focusing back on marvel team up 100 yeah We will continue. Karma has just shared her origin with the heroes. They've got to be overwhelmed. Uh, It's midnight on Pier 3 on the Brooklyn River, and the general is instructing his man Brentano to watch the children and observe and test them for psychic abilities. He says, if they lack such talents, then my organization will put them to other profitable uses. Which you get the idea he's going to sell these kids into, like, child slavery or human trafficking of some form if they have no value to him. This is not a good guy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he's got a very like he's got a fun like he both has a diverse portfolio and he's also very focused like he is like as we'll see later on he is a trafficker with a capital t and he'll traffic anything and he's very good at it he's kind of his own fixer too so he's got like this kind of libertarian bootstraps attitude about him as well <laughs> so it's never directly stated how he profited off the war but we very quickly get the idea that he was trafficking vulnerable children like this is an evil evil man uh spider-man arrives and pulls the kids away and you uh, we're pronouncing it uh, long and na uh is i don't know if that's the yeah. best way to do it it's l-e-o-n-g and yeah, n-g-a he is completely unnecessary so i ignore the e whenever i read um <laughs> yeah feel free to call um the the little girl would be would be uh na i don't know if they're like i don't know what the diacriticals would be so we'll just take it as the text is but i just keep i'll call, I'll call him long you don't have to worry about the e long, <laughs> we're, long and we're not, ignoring the e part in this name <laughs> uh karma 
Karma and the Fantastic Four are there. The general panics. If there was ever a time to prove your value to me, Tron, it is now. And Tron controls the Fantastic Four, makes them fight Spider-Man. The general runs back to his home. We're going to fast forward to the end of this story, but uh, Karma uses her powers to fight back and Tron dies. She gathers his soul and contains it within herself. And an image of a yin-yang symbol appears on her robes. And we literally get the idea that he is just like being contained inside her for the next several years. And it's brought up once in a while. And then we really see this reflected in the modern comics when Tron has been resurrected into his own body. Uh, with her siblings protected, she takes the name Karma for herself. And Mr. Fantastic says, Karma the sum total of the positive and negative acts of a person's life in one incarnation, through which the quantity of life in the next incarnation is determined, until at last a person of pure, positive karma achieves, achieves nirvana, literally oneness of the universe. Thank you, Mr. Fantastic, for over-explaining <laughs> for us, as you always do. <laughs> yes, thank you, Reed Richards, for explaining samsara to us. That's fantastic. <laughs> what are your thoughts on the way this story concludes? It's a pretty powerful origin. Yeah, well, I mean, I the the thing that I think about whenever I think about um, Karma's relationship with her brother is um, uh, actually Charles Xavier and Cassandra Nova a little bit too. Like they're sort of a microcosm of those two characters, and so like her psychically eating her twin is really fascinating. <laughs> I love a good I love a good evil twin story in any soap. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think it's so like it's so interesting too because I find that like her brother's choices like I think we're supposed to read him as a little bit sociopathic like he has the same moral scruples as his uncle and so he like and certainly he's seen and condoned so many of the things that his uncle has presumably done and he's helped him do that but he wasn't an adult when he started working for his uncle and so he was raised this way and the ways in which and like again like I, I always kind of come back to the ways that disaffected young men can be really easily um, cajoled into doing really horrible violent things in the name of stability because there is this sense of reclaiming what makes you a potent human being and so I think that the ways in which his observation of masculinity and kind of seeing his father die and seeing his uncle prosper um, kind of really contributes to the ways that he has chosen to survive in the world because he doesn't like he hasn't grown up in a world where where people are are righteous and so I think that the way that he's kind of treated now and sort of the way that I tried to sort of write him um, is is much more sympathetic um, and so his like a lot of the X Men characters have kind of war crimey pasts. Um, <laughs> like he's a character that I find to be really interesting just as a child of war in this very specific way and he has this sort of parallel in his sister karma and the ways that they've both navigated the aftermath of this conflict and all of their trauma and all of their loss is so fascinating and I sort of wonder like what his relationship with the two twins were like Um, and I wonder if that was a little bit gendered as well if he felt like a similar sense of responsibility over them as karma or if he also kind of just regarded them as as tools and I think that's something that's worth exploring. Yeah you kind of wonder if and this is not stated in the text as far as I know that his dad was kind of tough on him he had expectations of his male child that were different than those of his female child and part of the reason Tron goes over to his uncle is because he's getting that approval that his dad didn't offer that's not in the text but that's kind of how i read the character a little bit yeah it's a bend of heroism and one of the things you explore in your story with with karma and with tron which i think most good stories about karma do explore is the idea of control 
this idea of how do we, like our lives have been so out of our control. So how do we use our control? Again, karma pushes the soldier away where Tron makes the soldier kill himself. And which mm -hmm. one is the right one? And how do we use these powers to uh, to explore this identity within us? Uh, you, you did a brilliant job with these characters here. And the uncle is weirdly kind of the evil version of their dad is what you kind of get the idea. Yeah. Too. And her dad died and her uncle survived. And so there's this idea of, of uh, all of that as well. The karma being the destiny of it all. It's an interesting thing. Because again, the general is not a good man. Yeah. Uh, let me let me cover their next couple appearances quickly. Claremont loves to bring his characters from title to title. So he's writing Spider-Woman in 1981 uh, in an attempt to become the crime czar of San Francisco. The general has hired <laughs> the supervillain Flying Tiger, who is a black man. I think he's a former football player who's wearing a literal tiger suit with like a mask to fight Spider-Woman. Anyway, he fails. He jumps back in into number 46, and there is a text box here that establishes that the general had run the Saigon black market during the war. Uh, Spider-Woman's uh, civilian identity is Jessica Drew. She's a private investigator. She's been disrupting his work. So the general hires a team of hitmen to take her and her boyfriend, David Ashima, out in like this awful underwater attack. Later, we see the general meeting with the kingpin. And we've learned that they've established, we, we established here that they've had a previous relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, the general calls the kingpin his friend. And the kingpin says, we are business associates. The kingpin calls no man friend. You were a principal source for narcotics when you were a regional governor in Vietnam. In return, I assisted your departure from your homeland prior to your communist victory, or prior to the communist victory, and your subsequent entry into the United States. Since then, you have been prospered. Or you have prospered so the kingpin is part of the general's exit from vietnam yeah. to the United I, States. I read this and i was like oh kingpin got him out of vietnam that's fascinating <laughs> uh, what are your thoughts on this connection because this man he's got friends in low places <laughs> yes he's got friends in low places and he's got friends in he's got friends in all kinds of corners of the world yeah i mean like this is this is the one where i was like oh he's a lot more well connected than i originally envisioned because i was like okay so he probably has vague connections in madripoor i didn't realize that kingpin was one of his not allies but like one of his associates i guess um and so i think that that makes a lot of sense that like he would um yeah that he like as a an aspiring crime czar he would look to the kingpin for for some kind of help or allyship um but yeah no i think that's really fascinating and i i love like there are so many little details like the um like karma and and uh general win speaking speaking french um frequently is such a is such a lovely little detail about like it says a lot about their class before the war and it says a lot about their education and the ways in which they would have had access that a lot of other vietnamese people would not have and so that that is that lends a level of um cosmopolitanism to general win that i find to be really character appropriate as well uh, I do love how Claremont will bring his characters from book to book and just keep exploring them. He really gets attached to the character he writes. So to yeah. even bring the general into Spider-Woman is uh, fascinating. The general asks Kingpin for a favor. He says, will you please get Karma and her siblings for me? They're staying over with the X-Men. And the Kingpin's like, sure, but it doesn't really have a chance to go anywhere because Spider-Woman attacks, but also the Yakuza sends some mandroids there and the general's home explodes. He's a, He's got a penthouse that blows up. 
And uh, Kingpin says that it's, it's the general's fault for the attack and Spider-Woman's there. And anyway, the criminals nearly crash to death on the general's private elevator, but Spider-Woman saves them. And then Kingpin says, okay, because you saved us, I won't go after karma. It's fine. And then mm. that's all we see of the general until we get to uh, New Mutants. Yeah. New Mutants number six. This is uh, this is Karma's been on the team for just a little while. It's 1983. Claremont's still on the book. And uh, here's the text box. In in the heart of San Francisco's business district stands Carillon Towers, 60 stories tall, half offices, half luxury apartments. And in its penthouse resides the man who had it built, Nguyen Gokoi, former general in the South Vietnamese National Police. Officially, he's a prosperous multinational businessman. In reality, though, he is the self-styled crime czar of the Bay Area. This man really wants that title, crime czar. Over the years, <laughs> he's beaten back every challenge to his rule, crushed every foe. At last, he believes he has nothing and no one to fear. He is wrong. And then the new mutants attack. Do you want to talk to me about this issue a little bit? Tell me about this story. Well, I mean, I found this to be so, like, this was fascinating because I don't know the, the New Mutants all that well. And I think it's really interesting that he's positioned in the Bay Area. I mean, like, him aspiring to be a crime czar is is kind of fascinating because <laughs> that's, like, kind of a red scare term. And he would, like, if he got out of Vietnam and was brought over by the Kingpin and like not to say that he has an ideology because this character is clearly self-interested and he mostly wants to prosper for the sake of it i mean he wants power he's mega uh he's a little megalomaniacal and that's kind of like the gist of his character but i feel like he would not like i don't love that he wants to be a crime czar because he would he would like he loves american style capitalism and like the ways that american like vietnamese american refugees um, position themselves ideologically is kind of a lot like anywhere the U.S. has decided that they're going to like try to contain communism and then it produces a conflict that produces a ton of diasporic like um, refugees like those populations like there's, there are a lot of ideological parallels between like Cuban American populations and like the Vietnamese American population because Vietnamese Americans are way more conservative than a lot of the rest of the Asian American community like just politically in general and that's sort of changing as the generations sort of like age out and age in uh, into political discourse but it's fascinating that he's positioned in the bay area as well because there's a different there's a specific like power dynamic there that i find really interesting because the bay area is some place that i oftentimes associate with like with chinatown with east asians sure. and vietnam's relationship to the rest of like east asia and i'm not sure how you know pertinent that would be to this character's experience now because he's living in the states and presumably i don't know if he's an american citizen i guess is the other thing but like he he probably like i imagine like if you position him in the bay area probably has a little bit of a chip on his shoulder about all of the other crime lords like he probably feels a little like i need to show up in a way that puts me shoulder to shoulder like with the yakuza or with the triads or with any of these other kind of like east asian crime syndicates because Vietnam is kind of not considered to be quite as powerful as any of those entities and in the culture in the cultural consciousness is not a huge like as not a significant like cultural um force as these other kind of cultures that have been here for a really long time and so I can just imagine him thinking of himself in the Bay Area as an underdog crime lord surrounded by these sort of like 
established East Asian cultures, whereas he comes from like the sort of scrappier Southeast Asian, quote unquote, kind of jungle Asian culture. And he probably like he there's probably some sense of like grasping to maintain a sense of masculine potency in this specific context, which is so fun, which is not something that is addressed in the text. But like, I feel like I'm not reaching too much to read between the lines. No, definitely not. And it's interesting too, because the general has a lot of complexity based on the cultural and uh, the culture and the the application. But really, he's just another supervillain who like will shit all over you while he's sitting in the high rise, like with a woman on each arm and a martini in his head. Yeah, no. The second the heroes attack, he's like, let me get out of here, you know, like it's... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, he's not super complex, but like conflict is conflict and power is power. And oh, so absolutely. this character kind of slots into these places, like could be read as like, this is very sensitively written. And it could also be read as this is a comic book and this, these are the roles that he occupies. And they're both, I think, correct. <laughs> that's what, that's my favorite thing about making this show is like looking into complexity in the subtext. Uh, in this issue, the new mutants burst through the wall. The general's got a, a girl on each arm and he yells, Sacre Corps, which is a sacred heart in French. Uh, Karma is like, good evening, uncle. How pleasant to see you again. And she takes over the minds of the assassins. There's these superpowered kids. And she basically is looking for information on the character Viper. Viper is, uh, we're going to do some major stuff on Viper in my show of the future. I love this villain. She is an anarchist. Uh, she is the former Madame Hydra. She is pure evil. And uh, he basically nothing about Viper. This is um, this is fascinating. <laughs> Viper's Viper's fascinating. I can't wait to get to this character. Viper married Wolverine once. She's a she's an amazing character. Uh, oh, yeah. But oh, he's also a character that interacts with the general a lot. I'm excited to talk about Wolverine later. But let's let's gonna, yeah, we're gonna get there in just a moment. Yeah. But he basically says, I don't know the Viper. And then Karma takes over his mind and is like, either give me this information or I'm going to make you jump off this 230 meter drop down to California Street. And uh, he's like, oh, no. And so he finally agrees to, he, or excuse me, she says, talk, uncle, or die. And he says, do it, then possess me, kill me. You certainly have good reason. I betrayed your parents. I corrupted your brother. I forced you to destroy him. I'm everything you hate and despise, Shan. So take my life if you can, if you are not bluffing. And she stands down. He says, your father and the priests taught you too well, it seems. Uh, And uh, Karma says, the new mutants do not kill. That's our pledge. If we don't hold those beliefs, then we are no better than my uncle. And the general says, tut, tut, child, you judge me too harshly. I am neither an unreasonable nor vindictive man. I'll be most happy to assist you for a price. Your services, Shan, for a year. And she accepts, but then all the Shadow King crazy happens. (laughs) We're not going to spend time there today. Yeah, it's it's such a shame, too, because it's such a crucial aspect to Karma's character, her Shadow King arc. And it's also, unfortunately, something that I it's it's the thing that like of all of the specific traumas that she goes through, that one seems the least necessary. (laughs) We basically don't get the general again until New Mutants 31. And this is where Karma is possessed by the Shadow King and has grown massively obese. The Shadow King is an astral entity that is basically like the devil incarnate. And he has taken over her mind and turned her into this obese like version of himself. It's a very uncomfortable storyline. She's yeah. running a combat ring for profit, employing the gladiators to fight the new mutants. And when the police arrive, the only one arrested is the general. And Karma has clearly allowed this to happen. Uh do you want to do you want to comment briefly on the Shadow King possession? <laughs> I mean, listen, like, I think 
I think it makes sense as far in as much as Karma's character is someone who has a relationship and like a difficult relationship with struggling to maintain control. She has scruples about when it's appropriate to possess other people and she has clear boundaries around when those things need to happen um, and how she uses her powers. And then for the Shadow King to possess her in this way and sort of oust her control um, is like, I think is enough. But then Claremont has and I don't like I haven't read X-Men well enough to like know the extent of this but the way that he, that this um the way that he uses body horror and obesity like and fatness as like body horror is so troubling to me and and it's just, it's a thing that comes up over and over again and it's something like like it's a trope that I personally really really dislike because it's always conflated with grotesquery and with evil and with excess. And it's such a strange thing to like, I don't know that that this was something that was that deeply thought out. And I get that this was the eighties, but it's something that I still struggle with. Like it's something that I actually kind of wanted to address a little bit in the karma short too, because I love the character of Blob and kind of how he's been sort of- Blob kind of like re-examined a little bit and sort of like kind of given a human sensitivity and relationships and priorities. And it's it's wonderful to kind of see that happen and to kind of put the character of Karma like through this specific kind of trope and to make her this sort of like, like cage fight kingpin kind of character is so like, I, I, I really hated that. <laughs> I really hated this kind of specific fat phobic trope. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't know that I have too much else to say outside of like, yeah, I can see that the control thing is something that is specifically traumatic to her, I get it, but like this next step of like also doing the uh, conflating fatness with grotesqueness and with villainy is not something that I want to see anymore. <laughs> the light versus the dark. Now, Marvel has a number of locales that are fictional to their universe that are beloved from the savage land to subterranea. One of them is Madripoor. And Madripoor is an island nation that is very much a commentary on the rich versus the poor. There is high town and low town. High town is all fancy high rises and low town is all just extreme poverty. And it's a story over and over hundreds of times in the comic books about how criminals take over the uh, high life and profit off of the low. We've seen Mystique there. We have seen Sabretooth there. We have seen Madame Hydra slash Viper there. Uh, and this, we also get a lot of stories with Wolverine as Patch fighting against all this. And this is kind of the next section of the general who's tr now trying to make a name for himself in Madripoor. Uh, Karma has broken free of the Shadow King. She's skinny again. And now she is working for her uncle in his organization in Madripoor, but also kind of trying to secretly do good on the side. And there's a lot that's tied into this story. A lot of big characters that we love in the comics that we won't spend time talking about today, like Tiger Tiger is part of all this. Oh yeah, she's fabulous. She's I not a character familiar with at all and she showed up and I was like who is this oh gosh I'll tell you more about her another time she's okay. fascinating I really I really love her she's like a tough as nails like Claremont Dame I really I really like her a lot what yeah. are your thoughts on the general in Madripoor just kind of initially as we introduce his stories well okay let me see um well he well he's kind of doing his thing like I think in this story like 
is this is the first time where I think I got the sense that he's sort of like an all-purpose trafficker because he like he trafficked in narcotics, he trafficked in opium, and he also traffics clearly in people. Like he's a sex trafficker as well. And so I'm just like, oh, he's just doing all kinds of crimes. Um, the thing that I noted about this um, was that is that Wolverine canonically speaks Vietnamese, <laughs> which is fascinating <laughs> to me. I think that's it's such a wonderful detail because I think um, like you know within the the kind of like meme oriented internet wolverine being kind of a weeaboo like a japanophile is something that i is, is you know it's, it's kind of funny because like it's the 1980s and there's this like kind of fascination with the east you've got the the karate like it kind of comes out of that cultural milieu and i'm like i get that but this detail about wolverine kind of also being a veteran and being someone who is going to really be where he is is something that makes me really like the character quite a lot more like he's not just someone who's kind of floating from place to place and he's not going to cultures um that like he's trying to get away from his past and it'll take him wherever he needs to go and he's not going to places necessarily to like fetishize them or consume them he's just trying to be exactly where he is and the fact that he did that in japan in a specific and big way but he also did that in southeast asia to the extent that he was able to rudimentary, rudimentary, rudimentarily, sorry, learn the language is, is really lovely. Like that's such a nice bit of texture to his character that I did not have before. A lot of the Madripoor stories are about criminals trying to carve up power, trying to take each other down to get their own power forming alliances. And the heroes just kind of doing the best they can. There's a lot of stories about Tiger Tiger and Patch Wolverine uh, and other characters who are doing their best to maintain the peace, kind of like Karma is here by getting involved in criminal activity, because if they take someone down, then someone else will come in and fill it in, which is frankly a lot of the Kingpin stories in New York. Kingpin's on Krakoa now, so tombstone is running things there's always someone else ready to step up uh the general has formed his base in the uh, sovereign hotel uh and he's having a meal with karma where we get the the text that says after south vietnam fell to the communists i considered relocating to madripoor but roche was crime lord then and in his prime and i lacked the resources to properly challenge him today however thanks to tiger he is but a memory his criminal empire ripe for the conquest. Power, my dear Shan, as I hope you are to learn, is the ultimate addiction. Once tasted, all others pale, almost to insignificance in comparison. Although, of course, they do have their proper place. And there's this idea, Shan recently turned into this kind of bloated, gluttonous version, like the Shadow King giving into evil. And the mm. general's a weird kind of parallel to that like he's just kind of drinking in all this excess yeah he's but, uh... a kind of a libertine is the sense that you get in these like this was the this was the issue where i was like oh so he's just a megalomaniac he has no uh he has no real ideology he really just wants power which is like uh, yeah like sure yeah that's the, the mustache twirling villain part of him but the ways in which he seeks to acquire them and the relationships that he has to his like kingpin rivals is something that I find to be really interesting. Like he does a lot of like, I don't know that, um, like he 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 puts a lot of specific kind of flavor to it. Like he's not just a mid boss, like he very much is like a mid boss um, in terms of like the X-Men villains, but like he's very, like he has, um, like he's self-interested in a way that puts him at odds with karma um, and the rest of Madripoor and with Tiger Tiger in ways that I really appreciated. 
Now there is uh, there, there's a commentary with the kingpin. The kingpin will hire Bullseye and Electra. You got to get through them to get to the kingpin, but the kingpin mm -hmm. can still kick your ass. The yeah. general, you, he can't kick your ass. Well, it just depends anything. on. He's got to keep the talent around. And in this story, he's he's employing Bloodscream, who is a creepy vampire guy, and Roughhouse, who is a super strong, maybe Asgardian guy, that like got godlike origins. There's mm -hmm. a lot of characters flying around here, from Prince Baron to Roche to Archie Corrigan. All of these are like beloved Madripoor characters. Basically, what we get with the general here is he is at the height of his power. He's really loving life. He's loving profiting off of other people. He's dealing in opium. He's dealing in humans. Karma's in way over ahead. Uh, in issue six of Wolverine, we get Lindsay McCabe and Jessica Drew involved in the story. The general dresses them in slutty outfits, like very Princess Leia for Jabba the Hutt, and keeps yeah. them in chains and in collars. And he like promises Bloodscream and Roughhouse they can do bad things to these women once they are broken. Uh, he says at one point, each of us are connoisseurs, my friends, though my preference is for wine. Perhaps when our business is complete, I shall give her to you, foolish woman, to dare match yourselves against me. Uh, we get a lot of uh, story about him just kind of being this corrupt man who's trying to turn good things evil, trying to turn the things he acquires into resources. He's obsessed with revenge sometimes, but mostly just trying to profit off of whatever's in front of him. He's very self-obsessed in that way. He wants mm -hmm. wealth and he wants power, and that's really all that matters to him. Uh, and anyone he sees as an asset, as something he can exploit, is kind of the, the key piece of his character here. Uh, do you have any, any thoughts on this uh, portrayal of him? I mean, I don't know that this was, like, this, as far as, like, his character development is not something that I had any strong notes about. Like, I, like the only note that I made was kind of aesthetic, because I think John Byrne draws this issue, right? I can't remember. Uh, I don't recall if it's Byrne or not. I feel like it was yeah. Bishop, but I might be wrong. I know that he, no, I think it was Byrne, because I remember thinking, oh, Byrne can draw people real hot for some reason. And I, <laughs> like, at the beginning of the of uh, the general's journey, like, he's, like, he looks like somebody's Vietnamese uncle. And then in this issue, he looks like a, like, late career Cary Grant. Like, he's got kind of like a sexy sort of jowly gravitas about him. And I was like, oh, no, am I, does, is he giving me zaddy vibes? I don't love this for him. <laughs> I don't love this for me. <laughs> we can be attracted like, to evil men trying yes, to say well, yes i mean like if you like the x-men you're going to be attractive to e attracted to evil men at some point like it's just an inevitability <laughs> but yeah no i think he has like he has in this issue like a certain charisma and sexual menace that he never really had before um before he was like karma's antagonist and so he was keeping her siblings away and she wanted to rescue him and in this case he is a sex trafficker and he has like just incredibly rapey designs on um, Lindsay McCabe and Jessica Drew. And so he has like this different aspect of sexual menace to him. And so he's, and he's drawn in a way that's really kind of appealing. Like he has like a hot villain kind of vibe in this issue. And I was like, that's an interesting textual choice um, to, to take with him. And I don't know what that says about what the story is trying to say about him, but there is something, and it could just be that, the artist Burm or Bishema like just draws all the characters like looking like fantastic but like he he has like a particular 
air about him that he just didn't have in his previous appearances. This guy has a lot of savviness about him too. He's a survivor. That scene where he's like, karma, go ahead, kill me, right? That shows something. He's also, yeah. got, uh, he's also got an air of cruelty. We see a flashback scene where he captures Jessica Drew and he slaps her across the face and screams, perhaps wretched woman, because death is too quick and easy an end. You, ca you caused me considerable inconvenience, Miss Drew. And I'm a great believer in repaying hurts done me a thousandfold. Some appropriate drugs to reorient your mind. Re-education to teach you proper skills. The pair of you will bring a tidy, a tidy sum on the auction block. Alternatively, I might forgo profit for pleasure. That is why I have not yet employed my niece Karma to possess you and force you to do my bidding. Death is but an end. Dying, however, that is something altogether different. Think of the agonies I might inflict, tantalizing you with the promise of that final, blessed, yearned for, begged for release, ever to be denied. But do I, why dwell on such unpleasantness? I can also be generous. Your lives, for one thing. Freedom, for another. Wealth. I mean, he's a bad guy, but he's... he's He's scary in a way that I kind of... Yeah, he is. And you know what? The thing that you bring up about him not really having powers is something that is also really interesting because I think in this issue, like his relationship to like Prince Baran as well, which I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on at some point. I don't know that he shows up all that much. I'm not familiar with the Baran character, but he's diplomatic also. Like he occupies a position of power, but there are things that he can do and things that he won't do based on who is or is not in power and so his relationship to tiger tiger is like that as well where they're rivals but he's not always going to hone in on her turf depending on how he's gauged her sense of power i think he has a good like he's a man um that's evident in this issue who has his finger on the pulse and knows exactly where he's positioned and he doesn't have any illusions about him being the most powerful man at the time like he knows when to strike, I guess, which is interesting. And he knows how to curry relationships with his fellow ne'er-do-wells in the region. So that's something that I find to be fascinating. Like he has like a, a like he has a certain sense of charisma, but there is enough self-awareness, at least in this specific way, that he won't go out of bounds in a way that will mess with his operation. So I want to talk about the Baran relationship in a moment, uh, but uh, let me note really quickly, uh, this guy resents, the general resents powerful women, which also seems mm -hmm. to be a huge part of his character. He's quite misogynistic, unless he's got kind of a Trump energy about him. I will keep you close if you serve me well, but I will cut you loose otherwise. Let me cover a few of his appearances in kind of one quick summary. There's a, this part of the story, Tiger Tiger has put on like an impenetrable armor that he can't get off of her and he can't succeed in his goals unless he does. And it gets really tricky. Uh, Prince Baran is involved. We'll get to that in just a minute. Uh, we see mm -hmm. stories of him kind of manipulating people. There's a story where Joe Fixit, who's the Hulk character, gets involved. There's some battles with Patch or Wolverine, like breaking up some of uh, the general's like drug processing and slave trading facilities. Uh, this is a character, Wolverine's Adventures in Madripoor. Uh, general Coy is a big part of it, uh, which a lot of people don't remember. There's a storyline where a criminal named Geist, who is pretty complicated, we'll talk about Geist another time, is uh, fighting for some resources. Uh, there's a scene in number Wolverine 23, where Wolverine breaks into the general's apartment, disables his bodyguards, and then drags the general down to the sewers, along with Prince Baron, and threatens to inject the poison cocaine that they've been peddling in the streets into both of their systems. Oh my God. <laughs> but instead he destroys it and lets the men run for their lives, like, trying to teach them a lesson. I think there's a kind of an, a theme of like, Wolverine realizes that if he kills these men, it's just going to shake up the power more than, uh, it might cause more harm than it, than it does uh, do good. 
In uh, yeah, he knows what a power vacuum looks like. He's a smart man. <laughs> in uh, in twenty seven, we see the general in more direct conflict with Tiger Tiger. He's been working with Broker Andover on the Lazarus project. We'll talk about this in just a second. They discuss the artifact, the Master Form. Uh, the twins, uh, Liang and Nahu, or Long and Nahu, are missing. No one can seem to find them. They meet with Baran. The story continues. The Lazarus Project is a venture which one could use the Master Form artifact to create super soldiers. And the first mm -hmm. soldier they create is a guy named Pinocchio, who they then send to attack the country of Rumika, uh, another fictional country. Uh, the general's trying to make a deal with Baran, who is the elected or the current ruler of Madripoor, at least at the time. They're attacked by Wolverine. He loses his business. The general is furious to know that Karma's betraying him uh, and seems genuinely shocked when she's upset that because he had innocents killed. Uh, and then Wolverine's ready to kill the general, but Karma wants him to live. And this is the point in issue 30 of Wolverine where she says, I'm done with you. I'm not working with you anymore. So poison drugs in the streets, uh, fighting Wolverine multiple times, and now super soldiers. Uh, any thoughts here? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think reading these issues, my main thought was like, I really should, like, people should pair Karma and Wolverine together um, more often because they would have a great relationship. Like, I feel like they have a really good, strong, like, working, like, they have great co-worker uh, chemistry between them. And I think that they, they they should go on more adventures together was my takeaway from this. Um in terms of the general himself in these issues, like, I think that he, like, he sure makes a lot of choices. And I'm not, like, I found these issues to be honestly kind of confusing because there was a lot of like, oh, I don't know, I don't know who, who Pinocchio is and I don't know who this other kid is. And like, I kind of got the gist of it, but like, there's so much happening in these issues that I, he got real lost in the sauce for me. Like, he might as well still be running around in the sewers because I sure just did not really catch up with him in these issues. But mostly, like, it's a great, it's a great patch in karma kind of arc i think we also get him in wolverine 31 prince baron has assembled the general and tiger tiger who's like kind of in a standoff with all of them she has enough power that they can't really touch her even though she's a good guy dealing in criminal stuff but there's a guy named Dai Kumo from the Yakuza, and they've discovered, I'll keep this really simple because it's a really hard story to understand. They've discovered that the brain fluids of an endangered spider monkey in Madripoor have the potential to cure cancer, and they propose that they hunt down this endangered creature so they can sell the brain fluids on the black market. And again, we get reference to the general's opium fields here. There's also a story in 32 about the general working with Tiger Tiger. Uh, but he says that women think with their hearts and not their brains. Uh, so Which is so fascinating because didn't she occupy like his turf for a long time? Like he could not take her down. Uh -huh. Like she's like a rival to him, like a real serious contender. So there, there's a little bit of like, like he's misogynistic. And like, he's usually so good at being able to identify like when he can broker power and when he can't. And in this case, he, I mean, maybe this is the reason why he can never really get one over her because he can't read her well at all, which is fascinating. I'm like, man, you, you're you like, you're, you're one blind spot for some reason is Tiger, Tiger, Tiger. Is it because she's a woman? Like you, you seriously don't see that she is like, like she is the more competent kind of um, crime lord in the in the region for most of his character history. 
Tiger Tiger is a character I'm fascinated by. She's kind of forced into this space, but as a woman character who has no powers, as the counter to a lot of these evil influences that are around her, it's really interesting. Uh, the general enters a patch of history where he's basically just doing whatever he can to stay in power. He's profiting off of things. And we see him mentioned from time to time. Uh, in New Mutants 93, which is Louis Simonson in 1990, he's working with Strife, and the Mutant Liberation Front, uh, and they're poisoning a village's water supply, but Sunfire and the New Mutants are there with Cable and they fight him. And then mm -hmm. we get a story also in Marvel Comics Presents 85 through 91, we're in Madripoor, and the General has bought a new hallucinogenic drug from Cyber, who's the bad guy with like adamantium skin. But when he goes to pick it up, all of his men are dead. Also, all the men working for Tiger Tiger are dead because she wanted to buy the drugs also. And Cyber is planning to make them fight to the death, but Wolverine fights him off. And then the general and Tiger Tiger have kind of reached an understanding or a truce. They're going to tell everyone that aliens have killed their men in order to try to save face. <laughs> hilarious. The general at the end finally respects her and he asks her out. And she's like, fuck you, man. And then goes back. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I forgot about this detail. Like, I completely missed it because there's so much else happening. But I'm like, oh, so you hate Tiger Tiger because because you, you want to because you want because you want her. <laughs> so there's a lot of like stories of like drugs and superheroes and people getting in over their head. And the general's kind of one of the plot devices to drive these stories along. Did you have any comments on either of these two stories? Well, uh, I mean, like, he's doing his, like, crime lordy thing, like, the added dimension, like, the added wrinkle of, like, he's attracted to Tiger Tiger, and, like, that adds to why he finds her both frustrating and fascinating is, you know, it's interesting. Um, and, like, it kind of, like, a little light bulb went off in my head when you reminded me that, like, oh, yeah, he he tried to ask her out afterward, and I'm like, man, you were such a pathetic simp, actually, <laughs> it turns out. Um, yeah, and I think my only other note for these issues is that I hated the way that Rob Liefeld drew him. He looked like a space alien. And like yeah. the one or two panels that he shows up in, I'm like, I, I get that like Rob Liefeld's stylistic choices are real hit or miss. Um, but in the case of him drawing this specific character, he literally looks quite a lot like E.T. Um, and I I I was like, man, you you really gotta I don't know like he doesn't show up that much but he looks unrecognizable from his previous iteration I got a little bit of whiplash too because like he started off as like your regular uncle when he is hobnobbing with the Fantastic Four and then he weirdly got hot in the burn drawn issues um with the Wolverine and Karma and then now he's this sort of like he looks like a like post Charles Cassandra Nova in this panel that I was looking at I was like, man this is <laughs> he's he's taken all over the place Wolverine's stories in Madripoor are very much kind of the X-Men's version of Punisher and yeah. the, the Madripoor society is complex there's a number of characters running around it's really interesting and it's a fascinating part of X-Men lore that we don't often take time to think about and I love it. Larry Hama and Chris Claremont both write so much of this stuff and it's so beautifully done. The issue that I hate is the one we'll spend just a second on. Wolverine volume two, number 98. Larry Hama, it's almost, I'm going to assume, I've never interviewed Larry, but I'm almost going to assume that he was ordered by editorial to just clean this up and make it simple. This is like this high body count issue where he's just tying everything in Madripoor up in this 
unnecessarily complicated uh oh yeah issue. they all die like so many characters die like yeah. I, like the... i think like corrigan dies like all of like all of their buddies and i was like man i really liked archie <laughs> yeah the princess bar explodes archie corrigan dies o'donnell dies wolverine isn't uh, arrested by inspector ty uh the general and prince baron are like paying people off so that they can attach pan with their uh, patch with their own men who are named imak and iman who are like two dudes with claws anyway uh wolverine easily slaughters these guys and then the general kills prince baron to try to convince wolverine to let him live but then tiger tiger is shot by the general from behind he's like the only guy that survives from this story even though tiger tiger oh, tiger tiger shoots survived. him from behind oh right. excuse me i'm sorry i'm sorry i said that read that wrong so, uh, tiger tiger shoots the general from behind and thus is like the only survivor from this story although he didn't die we'll learn quickly but it's mm. almost like they're just trying to wipe out all of madripoor uh, yeah this, yeah this is the spot where if you want to talk about the general and his connection to a uh, prince baron who is the kind of corrupt ruler of madripoor for a while I, i'd love mm. to hear your thoughts well, I mean, like he's like he showed up in the the Jessica Drew um, uh, comic issues that we read earlier, and Prince Baron. Like, I I do like that he shows up and looks consistently like Prince Baron. Like every single time, like he has like a very specific. Like he doesn't show up that often, and so there's only one point of reference for who the character is. But the way that he very consistently is this sort of like power player in Madripoor. Um, is something that is kind of a reliable narrative um, through line that I appreciated when kind of reading through these. Like, I'll know that I'm in Madripoor if there's this guy with the weird hair and the widow's peak in the outfit. Like, I get it. I'm like, okay, Prince Baron, there he is. And he's like, the ruler, he's like the ruler who's dealing with criminals because he recognizes he's got to do that to keep his nation running. Yeah, there's yeah. honor about him, but also he's a bad guy. Uh, he's, yep. he's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. Like, I think the first time he shows up, he like thwarts um the general's like more libertine rapey designs on the heroines in that issue and so we see him and he's like oh okay so he's he's sort of like saved jessica drew and lindsay mccabe but then he has a relationship with lindsay mccabe that i didn't quite understand exactly what was happening and and then and wolverine was there the only thing well, that i lindsay, remember about lindsay mccabe is an actress from movies and there's like a, oh, oh God, i love you in your american movies kind of vibe sure sure yeah that's a very oh that's interesting that's a very like oh god i forget his name but the cambodian prince who was a disaster for a while is a character that i think that 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 Baran sort of reminds me of, like at least in that aspect of him. Sure, but yeah, the only thing that I remember from that issue outside of it being really well drawn is that like um Lindsay McCabe somehow slams a plane door dramatically as she's leaving Wolverine. <laughs> so I find so that was a so I thought that was kind of a funny detail where I'm like, oh, I didn't know that this was a thing that you could do uh to dramatically exit via plane. But yeah, I don't have any strong thoughts about Prince Baran um up until the moment that he is killed by the general and i'm like that's not i don't know that that was their relationship um so i didn't find it to be super believable but i guess if we're going to tie up some loose ends i this sure is a way to do it and you got to move fast in comics and so i get it um but at the end of the issue i was like did any of this matter because the general sure comes back <laughs> the uh the cleanup story is really interesting and again i'm going to kind of assume it was editorial edict prince baron is a bad guy he's not a great ruler he's allowing crime but once he's gone things get much worse in madripoor people like Sabretooth and mystique and viper take over so you mm -hmm. can kind of get the idea that he was keeping the peace uh the general's out of madripoor and 
And we see him next in 1996 in Spider-Man 7374. There is a group of a whole bunch of supervillain, like criminal guys. Mm-hmm. Gavin Thorpe, Hammerhead, Silvermane, Caesar Cicero, The Rose, The Slug, The Angel. And he's part of this group. And he's brought them all together. And his little speech here, he says, Esteemed colleagues, by now I believe you all know me. For those who do not, I am General Nguyen Gokoi. Many gathered in this room have conducted business transactions with me and my modest organization in Madripoor. Now I come to offer you the benefits of my humble strengths as a military strategist and as a man who has had dealings with our mutual foe. You are at war, my friends. Have no doubt about that. A powerful enemy has risen amongst you and threatens to take every to, uh, take from you everything. I propose a union of sorts to stand against the greed of Don Fortunato. He is one man and we are many. Once our enemy's one eye is brought down, then we can divide the city amongst ourselves without needless bloodshed. Uh, the plot gets exposed. Fortunato survives. He calls the crime lords before them, and he's going to execute a civilian from each of their territories. But there's a character named Jimmy Six. Uh, he's a Spider-Man guy who's like, it's complicated. Anyway, <laughs> Spider-Man and Daredevil are there, and then the general escapes in the chaos. But we see him trying to achieve power in New York. Maybe he's trying to become the crime czar of New York City now uh, by allying himself with the right people, and it doesn't end well. Yeah, uh, he's trying <laughs> he's just willing to reinvent himself wherever you'll give him a penthouse apartment <laughs> and a couple of pretty girls and some power. Uh, did you have, did you have thoughts on uh, on this era of his history? Yeah, well, you know what? He doesn't show up that much, but I remember thinking, man, like you, like you have more experience in this. Like he's a like he is his own fixer. He kind of knows the lay of the land usually, and so I thought it was unusual that he's in Spider Man territory now. Like he's in New York. Um, and so I was like, well, that's really weird. And then the fact that he like just invited all of these like, you know, big crime heads to this little meeting. Like, I wonder what that invitation looks like, you know, because I feel like <laughs> anytime in a superhero story when there's a gathering of a bunch of leaders, you know, a bunch of them are going to like they're they're about to beef it. And so I don't <laughs> I don't really like strategically. I'm like, well, this is very silly. I understand that for narrative reasons, he has to get all of these crime lords here. But also, like, I feel like he's a smarter man than to like gather all of these important crime lords together conveniently so that the heroes can take them all out at once um but like I, yeah i'm like yeah okay so logistically not your best plan and but I, I i do find it interesting that he has enough clout to like gather all of these people to like do a group project together i find that real cute <laughs> now the interesting part of this story this is in 1996 this is his last canonical appearance this is the oh. most recent time we have seen him which means over 25 years have passed and we don't know what this man is up to we well, he got away at the end of this issue right so he's like floating around somewhere yeah, he like ran off he's just uh he's hiding in some city and has established a base of power there's a story waiting to be told uh we do see him referenced in the beast series in 1997 which is very much about karma finally tying up this long-term plot with her missing siblings and the the real key piece is there's a moment where madam hydra uh, mentions or this is viper mentions mm-hmm. that tron had possessed her on behalf or on the order of general koi and forced her to work in his harem for several months which is oh. showing a, a particular type of evil 
Then yeah. we get the more, then we get the more modern series Wolverine Patch number one through five. This is a recent series that was kind of part of that like Marvel or X Men Legends story that's like telling us old stories in continuity, sure. and it's a flashback to Wolverine's early days in Madripoor where he's Patch, mm-hmm. and this is maybe the worst general story. It uh, very is because he's like. I find like this was so weird because I was like, that's the general. He doesn't get his hands dirty. He has other people do it. And he's off like killing like indigenous people like on his own. I'm like, yeah, that's yeah. not that's not General Coy. Like that's not that's do you remember, not him. Do you remember that story where he was willing to go like kill the uh endangered monkeys for their brain chemicals? This is that yeah. he's he's shooting and exploiting uh the lower class here i mean we know he's a trafficker so to mm-hmm. to see him taking advantage of the the population in this way is not that big a surprise right. but what we see here is he's exploiting the natives of madripoor into all kinds of different experiments slave labor he's killing them when they when they don't uh, work for him he kills a shield agent here uh, he's allying himself with the Yakuza and with the KGB. There's a group of uh, super powered like refugees from Russia here that get involved. Yeah. And, uh, they're, they're, they're that's, some like, that's all like super weird to me too, because like he, like the reason why he needed to flee and like establish his businesses in Madripoor and elsewhere is because of the war. And so it's weird that he would work with the Russians and then on top of that, to work with the Yakuza also is strange because Vietnam doesn't have a great relationship with Japan either. Japan occupied Vietnam for less than a year, um, but there's still some of that there. And so I'm like, okay, so I mean, like, I guess this expresses that this character really doesn't have, um, like we've mentioned before, like an ideology, like he's out for number one, he's going to work with whoever he needs to work with to get there. But I'm so stuck on the fact that he's doing this on the ground, like in my mind, because this is a flashback story, like this is maybe before he's established himself as a crime lord. And so he actually has to do the dirty work himself. And so he's not like a like a crime administrator in this story. He's actually on the ground doing the dirty work. And I'm like, that's kind of how I'm connecting it. But it seems out of character that he's doing any of this himself to me. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. And maybe he has to show his power on occasion uh, yeah. to who's himself who's in charge. This man is interesting to me. He's the kingpin of the X-Men in some ways, but he has been so underused for so mm-hmm. long, which is interesting because a lot of Karma's most famous stories have come in the last 30 years, but he hasn't had any connection to her in the last 30 years. Uh, yeah. Trot's back in his own body. All the Susan Hatchie stuff he's not part of. Uh, Karma coming out he's not part of. Uh, what are his thoughts on Krakoa? There's a lot of interesting things that we could do with this character. And I do love a good villain. And this guy is a villain's villain. You know? Yeah, no. And he's so like, he hasn't shown up enough that he has like a, like you can really take him in a lot of different directions. And I think the thing that I, that comes to my mind is that oftentimes the X-Men characters, like they're greater overarching struggles are against kind of institutional powers and he doesn't like he like is at the head of an organization but it's not a power structure that is like at the top of a hegemonic system like he's kind of somewhat someone who's kind of working underground and oftentimes the x-men find themselves working against the kind of formal powers at play and so i kind of feel like there aren't really a lot of opportunities for them to interact because he traffics in crime and the x-men are oftentimes fighting legislation they're fighting anti-mutant bigots they're fighting 
slightly different thematic villains. And he is someone who is more of like a, like I, he's written as kind of like a daredevil villain. Like he's a criminal and he's a, like kind of a, like it makes sense to me that Wolverine would run up against him because he has a specific context that comes out of war and that comes out of um, the destabilization of nations via drugs. Like he's like that character. And so a character that is kind of positioned himself in a place where he becomes a player in international politics and an underground is like a, like he makes sense as a Wolverine villain, but I don't really see him running up against the X-Men as a team all that frequently because they're mostly a search and rescue team. And they're oftentimes fighting whatever, you know, powers are against them at the time, which tend not to be always criminals. The story I want to see most, and this would have to be written by you, <laughs> is a flashback to Karma's early days where we see what the relationship between the general and her parents was like. We see his activities oh, yeah. during the war. We see this era of his life and her life fleshed out. The story that I would love to write, and I would feel a little bit more comfortable doing this version, is where he fits into the modern politics. Krakoa, at least before the recent, if yeah. you have to do Hellfire Gala, Krakoa is dealing in mutant drugs around the world and helping yeah. people with their health. And I right, like what's his relationship to Orcus? He would have his paws all over Orcus. I can easily see him drug trafficking or being allied with anti-mutant people. I could even see him trafficking in mutants where he's selling depowered or mutants with collars on into slave labor. Mm -hmm. Tron is also back. I could see him trying to exploit that and to try to get a foothold into Krakoa itself. Oh yeah. What yeah, do you want to see about this? This guy what are the stories you'd like to see about this guy well i mean i think i'd like to see him um i like i'd like to see him go up against tiger tiger again um i i'd like him to go up against some of the contemporary wolverines because that's that's interesting like like wolverine um having uh like progeny or like sidekicks now is is fun and so i'd and i mentioned before that like having a wolverine and karma story would be fantastic because if karma is doing business in madripoor and like having to deal with that level of um of like economics in that region she's going to run up against her uncle because he's involved all the time and so it surprises me that after the the um the susan hatchie thing that karma has not run into her uncle because if she's in control of a lot of money her uncle is going to show up so that's that's a story that i think could very easily be explored fascinating i am so every time i do one of these episodes i leave just with a huge smile and like my brain buzzing with all these stories that i want to write but i'm so impressed by not only your willingness to do this homework thank you but your command of your story of this story your careful analysis of these characters even when there's wide parts of this universe that you don't know as well yeah. <laughs> i'm so i'm so impressed uh about what you represent uh and and just i'm so happy to know you i'm a huge fan i'm happy to call you a friend uh trying i think you're incredible thank you this has been a genuine yeah, thanks so much for having me on it's i forgot how fun it is to just like talk about comics because i don't get to do that very often and you know like i have like i consider myself to be a relatively casual comics reader and so most of my knowledge is super rudimentary and to be able to like really dig in deep on one character is not something i've ever done to a great extent so this was an incredibly fun time for me this was great
It's a really it's a really interesting thing. I've spent hundreds of hours analyzing X-Men comics at this point, but I still don't know so much. Uh, when I when I delve into these characters in Wolverine titles that jump all over the place and I've got to crack open Spider-Woman and Marvel Comics presents, you know, I'm like, okay, there's so much more to learn. Uh, I need to revisit the Susan Hatchie story. So this is a preemptive announcement, although it probably won't be till next year. You and I can talk about Susan Hatchie sometime. <laughs> yeah, sure. sure. Yeah. We'll talk about <laughs> Susan Hatchie. I know literally nothing about her. <laughs> uh, she's a, she's an easy read. There's not a lot of issues, but uh, this has been a, a, just a joy, Trunk. Thank you again. And uh, like like I said, I'd love to get together in uh, Minneapolis. I'll shoot you a message. Um, we're going to put this out on the Patreon on August 30th. Uh, where can people find you online? And is there anything you would like to plug? Um, well, I don't have any projects coming out at that time, but I am online in all of the usual places. Actually, if you just Google Trungles, T-R-U-N-G-L-E-S, you will find me in all of the places, mostly. Um, my website is www.trungles.com, and that should also have links to all of my socials. Um, social media is uh, splintering in ways that none of us were able to really predict, and so we're, we're all over the place, but I am pretty easy to, to reach online. So if you need to find me, I, I am I am there. I'm somewhere in the networks, in the clouds somewhere. <laughs> uh, the only thing I want to mention briefly, and I'll, I'll keep this quick. In the Susan Hatchie story, we do see more reference to Karma's parents, uh, which, is, which is a story. Again, we'll touch on that another time. Yeah. Uh, but there is more to talk about there. I know you were busy and I know this episode went longer than we planned. So thank you for writing this way with me on this early morning. <laughs> I really yeah, appreciate it. It was a joy. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> uh, I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos, but Trung, you're welcome to add me. Uh, but you can find Grey Malkin Lane, Grey Malkin PP Like Podcast on Twitter for now, as well as on uh, Instagram under Grey Malkin underscore Lane. I'm also on Discord and Threads. I don't know what I'm doing. Social media is weird right now, you guys. Uh, the next episode coming out on the Patreon after this will feature the character Black Womb with the incredible uh, team up of Anthony Oliveira and Sarah Century. Uh, after that, we will be exploring on the main channel, X-Men The Hidden Years, numbers 21 and 22. We are finally done with that series uh, with the uh, featured guest <laughs> of uh, Elliot Kalin. And I'm so excited for that. And then to move on into new content. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Trung. And we will see you back here next time on Grey Malkin Lane's Patreon.